So where is it? The laptop. Sir, I'm not here to talk about the laptop. I'm here to talk about the FBI cyber program. You are the assistant director of FBI cyber. I want to know where Hunter Biden's laptop is. Where is it? Sir, I don't know that answer. That is astonishing to me. Is, has, has FBI cyber assessed whether or not Hunter Biden's laptop could be a point of vulnerability, allowing America's enemies to hurt our country? Sir, the FBI cyber program is based off of what's codified in Title 18, or um, Title 18, Section 1030, a code which talks about computer intrusions, right, using nefarious intent. Network well, you've talked about passwords here. I mean, Hunter Biden's password on his laptop was Hunter 02. He drops it off at a repair store. I'm holding the receipt from Max Computer Repair, where in December 2019, they turned over this laptop to the FBI. And what now you're telling me right here is that as the assistant director of FBI Cyber, you don't know where this is after it was turned over to you three years ago. Yes, sir, that's an accurate statement. How are Americans supposed to trust that you can protect us from the next colonial pipeline if it seems that you can't locate a laptop that was given to you three years ago from the first family, potentially creating vulnerabilities for our country? Sir, it's, it's not in the purview of my investigative responsibilities. But, but that is shocking that, that you wouldn't, as the assistant director of cyber, know whether or not there are international business deals, kickbacks, shakedowns that are on this laptop that would make the first family suspect to, to some sort of compromise. Mr. Assistant Director, have you assessed whether or not the first family is compromised as a result of the Hunter Biden laptop? Sir, as a representative of the FBI cyber program, it is not in the realm of my responsibilities to deal with the questions that you're asking me. Ha has anyone at FBI cyber been asked to make assessments whether or not the laptop creates a point of vulnerability? Sir, we have multiple lines of investigative responsibility in the FBI. They're all available in public source. Well, I would think you'd know this one. I mean, I would think that if the president's son, who does international business deals, referencing the now president with the Chinese, with Ukrainians. I mean, have you assessed whether or not the Hunter Biden laptop gives Russia the ability to harm our country? Sir, again, we can do this back and forth for the next couple of minutes. I don't have any information about the Hunter Biden laptop or the investment. But should you? I mean, you're the assistant director of FBI cyber. By, my, by the block and line chart? No, sir, I should not. Who should, who should we put in that chair to ask questions about this laptop that FBI has had for three years? Sir, I'm not, I'm, I'm not in a position to make a recommendation who should say So you don't have it. You don't know who has it. You don't know where it is. You're the assistant director. You know, earlier you talked about whether or not you were the Grant Hill or the Christian Leitner. It sounds like you're the Chris Weber trying to call a timeout when you don't have one. So I mean, who is it? Do you even know who has it? Do you know who we should put in that chair to ask these questions to? No, sir, I don't know who has it. Well, it, could you find out and tell us? You're going to have to give us briefings, thanks to Mr. Liu and Mr. Massey's question, about whether or not the FBI was taking a $5 million test drive on the Pegasus system that was being used to target people in politics, people in government, people in the media, people in American life. So will you commit to give us a briefing as the assistant director of FBI cyber as to where the laptop is, whether or not it's a point of vulnerability, whether or not the American people should wonder whether or not the first family is compromised? Sir, I'd be happy to take your request back to our office. 
gosh, I mean, will you advocate for that briefing? As sure. a, you, you will? I will be happy to take your request back to FBI headquarters. Well, will you, do you believe that that is a briefing that the Congress is, is worthy of having, I guess? Sir, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to answer that question. Right? I'm here to talk. The invitation, a, a sir, the invitation says oversight of the FBI's cyber division. It does not say anything. Well, well right, but I mean, this is, this is a cyber asset. This it's is a point a of vulnerability. Asset. If there are passwords, if there are business deals, if there are references to things that could harm our country, like you can't even sit here right now and say that you know that there's not a point of vulnerability. Maybe there are other crimes, maybe there are tax issues or whatever, but as it relates to our, I mean, it, is the first family sufficient cyber infrastructure to protect? You don't even know if they're compromised. Tell you what, Mr. Chairman. At about that point, Representative Matt Gates, Republican of Florida, entered Hunter Biden's laptop into evidence. <laughs> Is now part of the congressional record. And <laughs> Nadler tried his best to keep it out, but he couldn't. Now, I would like to remind everybody that while you've got, you know, one of the top officials for cybersecurity in the FBI saying, I don't know anything about the laptop. Uh, it's not my responsibility. Well, whose responsibility is it? I don't know. Why is it that every time left-wing government bureaucrats get asked, well, if it's not your responsibility, whose responsibility is it? I mean, this is your organization. You're one of the top officials there. You could certainly at least tell us who we need to put in that chair, right? I don't know. I just work here. You remember when Attorney General Eric Holder pretended to not know anything about the Fast and Furious gun scandal. Remember that? He's the attorney general. He runs the Department of Justice. He's the top guy. He's like, I don't know anything about it. And then we found out that he did know about it, and that he was sending emails about it, and then he got called back to Congress and said, hey, you lied to us. You said you didn't know anything about Fast and Furious, but here's these emails that we got from your email that says that you did know about it. You're talking about it before you even came into to that hearing with us. And I was not talking about that Fast and Furious. I was talking about another Fast and Furious. Remember that? As a former attorney general. Why is it that every time they get caught doing something, top officials at these bureaucracies go, I have no idea who's supposed to be responsible for any of this. This isn't a cyber issue. Oh, it's not? I'm sorry, are you aware that we have individuals in the government that have alleged, okay, and it is as of yet unsubstantiated, but they have alleged that there are Department of Defense encryption keys on that laptop? Wouldn't a Department of Defense encryption key be a cyber security issue that the FBI may want to be aware of? Hmm? I mean, if that story is true and there are encryption keys to the Department of Defense on Hunter Biden's laptop, as has been alleged, that would certainly be of interest to the FBI Cybersecurity Division. And this guy's going, nah, man, this ain't a big deal. What you talking about? This is the same FBI who refuses to take Hunter Biden's hard drive, even when Rudy Giuliani is offering it to him as they're raiding his home and taking every other piece of electronics in his apartment. And he's going, hey, you forgot one other piece of evidence. You might want to take it. And what did the FBI agents do? They walked away and they refused to take that. Of all of the computers and the smartphones and the digital assets that were in his apartment, the only thing the FBI, when they raided Rudy Giuliani's apartment, did not take was Hunter Biden's laptop hard drive. It was the only thing they didn't take. 
Well, what if Rudy Giuliani was using that hard drive for all of the things they allege that he has done? Which, of course, they haven't been able to build a case against him. But what if he was using that hard drive? What if he was lying about that hard drive being Hunter Biden's hard drive? And in fact, it was his hard drive. And that's where he was doing all of his nefarious, super Trumpy criminal things. But the FBI wasn't interested in at least investigating it. Don't you find that interesting? That's, that's amazing, don't you think? Let's go over just a quick, tiny little list of the swamp and the FBI and the things that they have lost, okay? Just in recent memory, okay? Just off of the top of my head. You ready? 33,000 Hillary Clinton emails. All of the IRS hard drives that were used in the targeting scandal. Uh, Lois Lerner's personal hard drive. All of the Fast and Furious guns. A record number of FOIA requests were lost by the Obama administration. There's whole articles written about how every time there's a FOIA request on the Obama administration, they lost all of the documents that were subject to that FOIA request. No other administration in the history of presidential administrations has lost that many documents other than the Obama administration. Well, the reason I bring it up is because a large chunk of the Obama administration is currently serving in the Biden administration. You remember when there was the uh, the Mueller probe? Uh, you know, the whole Trump-Russia collusion thing? You know, Robert Mueller is going to go get Donald Trump. Remember when they, they uh, conveniently lost all of the data on at least 27 cell phones for the members of that probe? Remember that? How they wiped every single one of those, those cell phones? For crying out loud, they lost 1,500 migrant kids. They don't even know where those kids are. Let's look at some of the stuff that the FBI specifically has been credited with losing over the past couple of years. You ready? Uh, They destroyed Hillary Clinton's laptops for her and all of her top aides before they were fully examined, even though they were warned prior to that, that those laptops would be needed to be examined for evidence in upcoming hearings. They've lost Hunter Biden's laptop now. Nobody knows where that thing is. Good thing Rudy Giuliani has a hard drive. So if the FBI doesn't find the laptop, Rudy Giuliani can just magically pop out of a cake and say, here's the hard drive anyway. Wouldn't that be nice? That'd be great. Good thing he has that laptop, huh? Let's see. They uh, they lost evidence with the FBI, the agent who murdered Lavoie Finnegan. Remember that? After the Oregon Wildlife Refuge fiasco. They lost the original 302 report for General Michael Flynn when they framed him and lied about him. They lost the contents of Jeffrey Epstein's safe. Remember when the FBI got into his safe? All of that evidence, all of those high-profile people in our society, including in the political class, who are going to be outed as people who Jeffrey Epstein was servicing with children and sex slaves. And the FBI lost all of that evidence. All of it. Gone. Poof. The FBI is being sued still because they lost all of the evidence linking Saudi Arabia to 9-11. Uh, they lost all of the text messages that Peter Strzok had with his side piece, Lisa Page, talking about Trump and his supporters and how they're going to rig the election. They lost a bunch of the evidence in the Las Vegas shooting massacre. They lost a bunch of the evidence in the Bundy Ranch situation they lost i mean just go back in history they lost evidence on ruby ridge they lost evidence on waco um and that doesn't include the stuff that they fabricated whole cloth like trump russia collusion 
and everything associated with that case. The FBI manufactured that evidence out of thin air. That's kind of weird. Um, it seems like every time they have an issue losing evidence, it seems to benefit one political ideology over another. I wonder why that is. Every time the powers that be are closing in on corrupt Democrats, the FBI loses evidence. Every time swamp-dwelling FBI senior officials are going to be exposed as the criminals that they are, they lose that evidence. Every single time. You ever notice that? Isn't that amazing how that happens? It's um, it's the most, con- it, 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 I should say this, it's the most consistent dink ever to happen in human history. Every single time the FBI leadership or Democrat party officials are going to be exposed, evidence gets lost. And it's always lost in a way that is illegal for it to have been lost and seemingly impossible for it to have been lost. Every single time. And so here's Matt Gates. He's like, the hell's that laptop? You know, the one that you guys have. Where is it? I don't know. Okay. Uh, you're the number two guy at FBI Cyber. Shouldn't you know about this laptop? It might have compromising information on it. Not my job. All right, whose job is it? I don't know. I just work here. What an amazing answer. What an amazing answer. Think about this. Just Honestly, just take a step back and think about how this guy answered that question. Where's the laptop? I don't know. You're the number two guy at Cyber. Shouldn't you know about it? Not, not my job. Okay, well, whose job is it? I don't know. I just work here. Isn't that an amazing answer? Don't you think? (laughs) And the fact that there are people in the news media and there are leftists all over social media defending this guy and attacking Matt Gates for asking a very simple question that even now, two years late, but even now, the New York Times acknowledges a very real question. Did you see the CNN? I know you didn't see it because nobody watches CNN. CNN, for those of you who don't know, yesterday admitted the laptop is a big deal and people might go to prison for it. Yeah. You've got members of the news media confirming that there is an underage relative of Hunter Biden inappropriately pictured on that laptop. Which would make Hunter Biden a sex criminal. In an incestuous relationship with a relative. Where's the news media on that? Amazing stuff. Oh, but we're not done yet. There's a lot to get to today. Oh, don't worry. We'll get to Disney. I know a couple of you are asking about Disney. Yes, we'll get to Disney. Trust me, we will get to Disney. More coming up. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. And good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. I'm your host, Casey Hendrickson. Don't forget, you can watch the live stream, rumble.com slash Casey the host or theburningtruth.us. Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican of Iowa, and Senator Ron Johnson, Republican of Wisconsin, took to the floor of Congress on Monday. They laid out a considerable set of receipts on the financial connections that they have found between Hunter Biden and oligarchs connected to foreign governments, including the Ukraine and China. Our reports exposed extensive financial relationships between Hunter and James Biden and Chinese nationals connected to the communist regime. 
By the way, Hunter Biden is still listed as a board member of that Chinese company that we were told he was going to be leaving before Joe Biden was sworn in. He's still listed on that board, and he got like a hundred grand from them or something like that last year. More precisely, these were Chinese nationals connected to the Chinese government's military and intelligence services. Much of this focus was on a Chinese government-linked company called CEFG, uh, excuse me, CEFC Energy, whose since-imprisoned energy tycoon leader Ye Jingming was linked to the Chinese military. CEFC operated under the guise of a private company, but was, for all intents and purposes, an arm of the Chinese government, Grassley said. Grassley then teased that they had more records coming that would further show these troubling connections to the Chinese Communist government. And Johnson said that although their 2020 report had lots of evidence, it had been falsely attacked by the liberal media as Russian disinformation. And part of that came from the 51 liars, who are former intelligence operatives, who said, hey, uh, this is Russian disinformation, even though they weren't current intelligence operatives. They were former. And I said that at the time. I think I was one of the only people, because I came on, I was like, I was surprised that nobody has said this yet. But all of these individuals who are saying that the, that all of this is the Hunter Biden laptop story was Russian disinformation, not a one of them were currently in the intelligence field. So how would they know? Right? And I thought it was weird that everybody was just, oh, these former intelligence officials are saying this. How would they know? They wouldn't have any idea. Grasley showed bank records indicating that CEFC had transferred $100,000 to a bank account for Hunter Biden's firm, Owasco, as well as giving further credit to Owasco. The Senate report that they had previously released on the matter showed that members of the Biden family had used the money for a global spending spree. Now there is no middleman in this transaction. This is $100,000 from what is effectively an arm of the communist Chinese government, direct to Hunter Biden, Grasley said. Now, keep in mind, he's got bank records, and he has shown them. Okay? He's got records. He's got receipts. This is not up for debate unless you can prove that these bank records are fabricated. He sarcastically dared the media to deal with the facts. A question to the liberal media, my Democratic colleagues, who accused us over the last two years of distributing Russian disinformation. Is this official bank document Russian disinformation? Seems like a pretty good uh, request, right? He's got a bank record of this deposit from the Chinese Communist Party to Hunter Biden's bank account. So, if it's not real, he's challenged Democrats in Congress and the, the American media to debunk the bank record. Prove to him that that bank record is not authentic. And if you can, Chuck Grassley's a stand-up dude. He'll admit it. But to this point in time, we have no evidence that this bank record is false. None whatsoever. Johnson also pointed out, uh, bank records like this piece of evidence are pretty hard to deny and sweep under the rug. Our reports were chock full of irrefutable evidence like this, and yet the media buried those details in an attempt to keep it hidden from the American people. Remember, one of those 51 former intelligence operatives said, uh, yeah, my lie, um, you know, if it helped Biden win, then I did a good thing. Remember that. Remember that. Where is Hunter Biden's laptop? Good thing Rudy Giuliani has that hard drive. MNC News Time is 3.33. Time to check out Impress Jewelry Creations, creating meaningful jewelry for the moments that will last a lifetime.
Good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. Do you want to thank R&B Car Company, locations in South Bend and Warsaw? R&B Car Company are your used car experts. Speaking of things that the FBI keeps losing, I've got to talk about Ray Epps. If you don't know who Ray Epps is, he's the guy that appears to have started the Capitol riot on January 6th. There was no riot. There was no violence or anything until he went into somebody's ear and went, (laughs) and then that person started rioting. That's how it started. Now, the problem with this is that Ray Epps is believed to be an FBI asset. And there's a lot of evidence that Ray Epps is an FBI asset. We have covered that evidence on this show and on the podcast and on the stream and whatever else you you watch or listen to with this program. But now something interesting is happening with Ray Epps. The Biden administration is reportedly preparing to release more information about Ray Epps, who disappeared and vanished. He was one of their most wanted, and then all of a sudden he wasn't one of their most wanted, and they weren't interested in him at all, and now suddenly he's testifying on their behalf of this whole thing. So they're going to release more info about Ray Epps. Uh, Daily Wire writes, a man who has been accused of being a Fed during the January 6, 2021 riot that broke out of the U.S. Capitol. Remember the day before when he was talking about breaking into the Capitol and all of that other stuff, um, he was, the, the crowd was overtly shouting, Fed, 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 because um, they, they were identifying him as a Fed. Assistant U.S. Attorney Karen Rockland said in court on Tuesday that she intended to provide a disclosure about Epps, a former Oath Keeper, in response to requests by January 6 defendants accused of leading the breach of police lines, including Ryan Samsel, who briefly huddled with Epps before charging the barricades. Now, this is all according to Politico, but it's being reported by the Daily Wire, okay? Epps, who has, uh, was seen on video on January 5th, the day before, urging Trump supporters to go into the Capitol, adding that they should be peaceful, became the focus of conspiracy theories pushed by right-wing media outlets, uh, unquote. Okay, That's Politico's quote. That is not Daily Wire's quote. Epps, they noted, was not arrested despite being toward the front of the, uh, the, the crowd, and although his face initially appeared on a list of unidentified suspects, it was removed months after the breach. That led to unsupported claims that Epps was a government informant. That is Politico saying that. But again, this is being reported in Daily Wire. They're just quoting Politico. Senator Cruz grilled Jill Sanborn, executive assistant director for the FBI's National Security Branch, about Epps during a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing back in January. And Sanborn repeatedly refused to answer Cruz's questions about whether FBI agents or confidential informants participated during the January 6th riot. Now, the FBI has all but admitted that they had people in the crowd. We also have Project Veritas with a New York Times reporter, a very prestigious reporter, admitting that there were feds all over. Plainclothes feds in the crowd all over the place. So there's a lot, a lot of evidence that there were feds in the crowd and that they participated or may have even kicked off some of these riots. Now, again, it is important that people understand a very basic fundamental fact about what happened on January 6th. In some areas of the Capitol, the crowd started the violence and pushed into the building. In other areas of the Capitol, law enforcement started the violence, which got the crowd amped up, and the crowd then responded. In other areas, law enforcement 
opened the doors and let the crowd in, and the crowd was totally peaceful. It just depends on where you're looking at at the Capitol. Okay? The Capitol doesn't have just one door. So you have the news media conflating all of these things, hiding other ones and that sort of stuff, and a lot of the defendants have been able to get some of the, the surveillance footage released, and that surveillance footage was stuff that the government went to bat desperately trying to keep from the public. Now, again, I believe you should always take a step back on these things when you hear about a story and you have to ask yourself a basic question. Why did the government not want you to see pictures of law enforcement at the Capitol opening the door and inviting and waving in the protesters? Why do you think that would be? Hmm? Could it be that it blows a hole in their narrative? Right? Well, there they are on video opening the door in some parts of the Capitol, not all, but in some parts of the Capitol, opening the door, waving people through, okay? That is on camera. You can't dispute it, and it's something the government tried to hide from you, but ultimately was released as a result of the defendants um, going, going uh, well, basically making that request and forcing the government's hand. Now, in other parts of the, the Capitol, again, the, the crowd kicked off. That's where Ray Epps was. Ray Epps whispered, next thing you know, there's violence. We do know that next to Ray Epps, there was also Antifa and BLM activists who participated in the rioting as well and were chanting and urging the crowd on. Doesn't excuse the behavior of Trump supporters in the crowd who committed those acts. Um, we also know in other areas the crowd was peaceful until law enforcement fired crowd control devices at them. Um, one of those devices allegedly caused the death of somebody. And the family is in the process of filing lawsuits in that particular case. So there's a lot of stuff that, that obviously has to be unpacked about this, but it is important that as you hear about this story that you understand that there are different things that, that happened and there isn't just one, one truth per se. So when the media goes out there and goes, oh, the rioters started this. Well, they did in some areas, but they didn't start it in other areas. Law enforcement started it in other areas. Now, you can argue that law enforcement was justified in using those crowd control devices because the crowd wasn't dispersing. That's a fair argument. But it doesn't change the fact that the crowd was peaceful until those crowd control devices were fired into the crowd, severely injuring and maybe potentially causing the death of at least one of those individuals. So it's important to keep that in mind. Uh, there are different sections of the Capitol where this all took place and different things happened in those sections. Um, so there's a lot that, that has to be unpacked, obviously, but this will be an interesting disclosure on Ray Epps and why is it that there is going to be a disclosure from the government about this man after all this time. It'd be real interesting to see what the government says. But uh, also, just you know, another thing that the FBI lost. I forgot to add that to the list. Um, so remind me to put on the list, uh, Josh, later today in my, my Google Docs, the FBI lost Ray Epps. Got to put that on there, too. All right, we got more coming up. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. And good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. I'm your host, Casey Hendrickson. By the way, thank you for the growth on Rumble here lately. Uh, it did slow down for a couple of weeks, but it's starting to pick back up again. I do appreciate that. You can watch the live stream right now. Rumble.com slash Casey, the host. Rumble is almost to the point of my YouTube channel. So close. So very close. Now, if I could just get everybody on YouTube to go over to Rumble, 
That would be great because I got a sneaking suspicion that most of you who subscribe to my channel on YouTube are not on Rumble. And that would be that would be big. Uh, the word of the day in the comment section is, God, we need you now. That is your phrase of the day, I guess. Uh, put it in the comment section, not in the live chat, please, on Rumble. Bernie Sanders is still really terrible at math. So I assume that Bernie Sanders supporters are still really terrible at math. Okay. Uh, he has just proposed, and I'm not making this up, he has just proposed a 95% tax on businesses. Yeah. 95% tax on businesses. Now, right off the get-go, uh, if you're excited about that, you're an idiot. Uh, if you have the natural going, what? <laughs> then you kind of understand how this works. This is this is a this is a big deal. But you know, again, he's got his dumb supporters out there. I've never met a Bernie Sanders supporter who's good at math. Just haven't. High gas prices and runaway price inflation, more broadly, are top of the mind of many Americans right now. Uh, the latest polling has uh, Republicans plus six points in the midterm elections. And frankly, it should be a lot higher than that. But the average, the RCP average is Republicans plus six points in the midterm elections. So uh, right now they're favored to win by six points. Okay. As a result, progressive politicians are feeling the squeeze to explain why the federal government's money printing and deficit spending aren't to blame. And if Bernie Sanders' latest radical proposal is anything to go by, some of them are getting pretty desperate. The Vermont senator just unveiled a proposal for a 95% tax. Yes, 95% on business profits above their pre-pandemic levels. So if you happened to have a business that was structured for a pandemic, sometimes, look, there are businesses that do really well in a good economy, and there are businesses who do really well in a bad economy. That is just the nature of whatever the product is, or the service is, what have you. Now, obviously, we've got some companies, uh, by the way, big left-wing companies, big left-wing companies like Amazon and things like that who donate lots of money to Democrats. They did the best in the pandemic. But it is interesting that he, he wants this. So if you have a business that just happened to be tailored to what people needed during a pandemic, he wants to tax 95% of your profits that are above and beyond what happened before the pandemic. Now, I'm assuming that if you started a company in the middle of the pandemic, which, by the way, a record number of people did under President Trump, a record number of people walked away from their employment because of the shutdowns and everything else, and they started a business, and they became business owners. So I guess Bernie Sanders just wants to tax everything that they have made. Yeah, this comes as part of a larger attempt to blame corporate greed and price gouging for inflation. Uh, for those of you who still think that it is price gouging, again, uh, you need a basic economics course. They are printing money. They are increasing our spending, all of which causes inflation. We've been telling you this for my entire career, and others have been telling you for their careers that have been longer than mine. And when you have a direct attack, a direct attack in the energy sector, you're going to continue to have uh, energy price issues. And we went over the latest attempt to raise the price of gasoline and oil by the Biden administration just yesterday on this show. If you missed it, Go check out the podcast or watch yesterday's live stream video on Rumble. This is um, <laughs> this is ludicrous. I I don't I don't really know what to say because if you don't understand that a ninety five percent tax on business profits is stupid, there isn't any help for you. I is there a way for somebody to reach you 
other than you having 95% of your money taken away from you? I, I don't really know that there is. I mean, if you think that that is okay, you're, you're a lost cause. And nobody should take you seriously ever about anything. Because if you can buy into a 95% tax being a positive thing, really your opinion is invalid on any topic that you discuss, period. There's no hope for you. You're what we call an oxygen thief. You are stealing good air from the rest of us who could use it. That's what you are. You're a placeholder. If this were, oh, I don't know, 50 years ago, there is a good chance you would not have survived eating the lead paint chips when you were a child. So that's kind of where we're at. People keep asking me why our society is going downhill. And I know that a lot of people have the throwaway, well, it's it's God. Not really. Yeah, there's a little bit of that, sure. But I think the bigger issue is that we don't let the weak die off anymore. I'll be perfectly honest. We baby the weak, and they grow up, and they become adults, and then they get into positions of authority, and, and the weak do things that weak people do, and they ruin everybody's life. You know, there's a saying, uh, weak men make hard times. That's what we're dealing with right now. Not much else to say about it. So Bernie Sanders, again, still really, really bad at math. Uh, by the way, Inflation, Bidenflation, will cost American households an additional $5,200 this year. So, if you didn't get a $5,200 raise recently, you are going to get a pay cut because of Joe Biden and Democrats and their stupid policies. So, there you go. I'll even throw in there a little bit of Trump, too, because he did allow the shutdowns. Okay? I will, I'll throw that in there because that kind of led to all of this. But... Yeah, this is this is bad. Five thousand two hundred dollars in twenty twenty two is the average that it, inflation will cost American households. So that's less money that you have to buy anything, take a vacation, provide for your family, uh, your grocery situation, whatever it might be. Five thousand two hundred dollars less you are going to get on average this year because of Biden inflation, and that's just how it stands now. Who knows what's going to happen after the Fed gets done with uh, interest rates. We'll see how that all goes. Don't forget to go to rumble.com slash Casey, the host. Make sure you watch the live stream. Subscribe. Uh, we'll uh, probably have some Ronald Reagan jokes, telling jokes about the Soviet Union for five minutes, coming up here in just a couple of minutes on the live stream. And a lot more coming up. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. Please subscribe to the daily show prep and the newsletter for free at theburningtruth.us. We'll be back in just a minute. Good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. Do you want to thank R&B Car Company? Locations in South Bend and Warsaw. R&B Car Company are your used car experts. Shall we talk about Disney? Ladies and gentlemen, shall we talk about Disney? Josh says yes. Josh says we should talk about Disney. And look. I think that I am going to take a relatively neutral stance on this because I just want to play for you what they say, what DeSantis has said in response, and I will let you decide what in the world you want to do with your Disney merchandise, your Disney purchases, your Disney subscriptions, whatever it is, okay? It is entirely up to you because different families function in different ways. Um, I will say that... We, we did watch that Going Red movie, um, and my wife watched it 
and kind of screened it. And she's like, yeah, there's a couple of things in that movie that are not great. Um, so it, it's, she goes, she doesn't think it's as bad as a lot of people have portrayed it to be. I've only seen bits and pieces of it. I haven't seen the whole thing. Uh, there's a couple of parts where it's like, eh, like, why is that in there? That sort of thing. Um, and going, going red is a metaphor for uh, <clears throat> becoming a woman. All right. They don't really overtly go into that, but they, it, it's a metaphor for puberty for girls. And, you know, it, there, there's, I think my nine-year-old's good. Um, my five-year-old has some issues with some of the scenes in it that I have to kind of talk to her about and correct behavior on. So, it, you know, it, it depends on your kid. So learn who your kid is and that sort of thing. My five-year-old just happens to be susceptible to that stuff, and she'll repeat, you know, what she kind of sees. So there are certain things we have to keep from her that the nine-year-old is fine with because she understands the difference between, you know, fiction and, and um, reality. But I wanted to go ahead and play this because Christopher Rufo has obtained video. Now, this is inside Disney's all-hands meeting. This is about the Florida bill because Florida Governor DeSantis just signed the bill. It says you're not going to groom children kindergarten through third grade. Okay, You're not going to sexualize children kindergarten through third grade. You're not going to discuss any kind of sexual activity with children kindergarten through third grade, which you could go beyond third grade, but... Everybody universally, unless you're a, a complete sociopath or a child predator, can understand that sexualizing kids age kindergarten through third grade is the wrong thing to do. Okay. Anybody who disagrees with that, who actually knows the bill, okay, there's a bunch of idiots running around who think that this is about attacking gay people. They're just dumb. All right. I'm talking about the people who actually know what's going on and are still choosing to be upset about this. Those are the people that I would assume the local sex crimes unit would be investigating. If I were the head of the local sex crimes unit, I would be investigating these people because there's something wrong with their medulla oblongata. So this is Latoya Ravenue. Now, she works for Disney. Cue my audio, please. I want you to just listen to the stuff that she says. All right? Um, I will let you be the judge. Keep in mind, we're going to deal with, I guess, some mature themes or some themes that maybe some of your parents don't want to deal with with your kids. So maybe... Headphones right now instead of having the kids listen to this. But this is her on that whole conference call talking about what her and her team at Disney are doing as far as the programming and character development stuff. It's like I love Disney's content. I grew up watching, you know, all of the classics. They have been a huge, like, informative <laughs> part of my life. But at the same time, like, I worked at small studios most of my career. And I'd heard, you know, you hear whispers. Like, I'd heard things like, oh, you know, they won't let you show this at a Disney show. And I'm like, okay. So I was a little, like, sus when I started. And, but then my experience was bafflingly the opposite of what I had heard. On my little pocket of, like, you know, proud family, Disney TVA, um, the showrunners were super welcoming. Meredith Roberts and, like, the, the our leadership over there has been so welcoming to like my like not at all secret gay agenda and so like i i feel like i felt like it was i mean like maybe it was that way in the past but i guess like something must have happened in the last like like they are turning it around they're going hard and then all that like momentum that i felt like that sense of i don't have to be afraid to like let's have these two characters kiss let's in the background this like i was just Wherever I could, just basically adding queerness to, like, to, if you see anything queer in the show, I'm proud of them. But, like, I, I just was like, no one would stop me and no one was trying to stop me. Okay. 
This is a person at Disney who is an executive producer who develops content that your children watch. And she just said that she has a, and, and Disney has been very welcoming and supportive of her, quote, not at all secret gay agenda. And that she regularly, quote, adds queerness to children's programming. And you heard her say that. So you, as a consumer of Disney products, you do with that what you will. Okay. Now, there is some more of this that I don't need to play you all of these little sound bites. I will put them in the daily show prep for you to go ahead and, and go through each individual clip and actually watch. But Tucker Carlson had Governor DeSantis on to talk about this. Now, keep in mind, this was an all hands on deck response to Florida saying you're not going to sexualize children. So Disney's response to don't teach kids about sex and sexual activity, kindergarten through third grade. Disney's response was, we need to oppose this and push sexualizing material to kindergarten through third grade. That was Disney's response to Governor DeSantis signing a bill, which has completely been debunked as not a don't say gay bill. Okay. And I will prove why it was such the right move to do this in in the next segment beyond this. Okay. But I want you to listen to Tucker Carlson asking Governor DeSantis about Disney's response to him signing this bill. I have to ask you this, since you're on the topic of Disney, journalist Chris Rufo, who's really done a lot, has just obtained a video of an all-hands meeting at Disney. The meeting was in response to the legislation you signed in Florida. Here is Disney corporate president, Carrie Burke. Watch this. I'm here as a mother of, of two queer children, actually. Um, uh, one transgender child. Um, um, and one pansexual child, um, and and also as a leader, we have many, many, many LGBTQIA characters in our stories, and 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 yet we don't have enough leads um, and narratives in which gay characters just just get to be characters, um, and and not have to be about gay stories. So I don't understand why an entertainment company that makes animated movies gets to control legislation in your state. Well, especially, Tucker, you got to wonder, like, why is the hill to die on to have transgenderism injected into kindergarten classrooms or woke gender ideology injected into second grade classroom? Why is that the hill to die on? Meanwhile, if we had done a bill that prohibited uh, talking about the abuse of Uyghurs in China, Disney would have supported that legislation because they don't <laughs> want to say a word about that. So it's just an odd manifestation of their corporate values that they actually do Disney cruises, Tucker, to the nation of Dominica, which criminalizes homosexuality. So they're fine doing that and lining their pockets. They're fine lining their pockets from the CCP and all the atrocities that go on there. But it's those kindergartners in Florida that they really want to have transgenderism uh, as part of their core curriculum in school. And talking to kids about their genitals. Like, I, I thought that was, I'm not a lawyer, I thought that would be a crime, right? No, it should be. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting way of, of phrasing that. And DeSantis kind of answers this, and, and he answered a very similar way. I, I was thinking back to the few times where my teacher's personal life ever came up in class. And most of you listening to the show right now, you grew up, your teacher's personal life was off limits. 
largely your personal life was off limits unless there was abuse that the teacher could help you get away from, right? Josh, did you ever have any teachers in school talk about their personal sexual lives? Okay. The closest we ever got was Mrs. Griffith. Okay. She was my sixth grade math teacher. She was amazing. But as I've highlighted before, she would be in trouble a lot today because she used to have little comments like, oh, she would do her little like, uh, we're going to do a story problem or whatever. This is the men's bathroom, my favorite place. And then she would move on. Okay. Miss Griffith was great. But in today's world, Miss Griffith would get in trouble. Okay. Now, we all liked her, never saw her do anything inappropriate with anybody, but, um, you know, she she said some things in class that I think would get her in a lot of trouble nowadays. So DeSantis kind of answered that last question from Tucker Carlson this way. Listen to this. I think it's a good answer. So the fact that they're going to this lengths to try to torpedo legislation that I think 90% of parents probably view as just common sense, um, it really makes you wonder, you know, about what's motivating this decision-making. It, it really does. And just to be clear, final question. I read the bill. It doesn't say anything about gay marriage, does it? Is it not an anti-gay marriage bill? Tucker, Tucker, the word gay is not in the legislation. Right. So they okay. say it's banning a word that literally isn't even in the legislation. It's not even like they're misrepresenting the way the word's used. It's not even used in the bill. It's a, it's a fake narrative. It's a lie. But it's a lie because they have to lie because if they admitted what they were really for, sexualizing kindergartners and first graders, they know that would not fly with the public. Exactly. Exactly. But isn't that a, a great couple of questions that Governor DeSantis asked? Why is it a hill to die on to inject transgender and gender ideology in the classroom for kids who are between four and 10 years old? Why is that a hill to die on for Disney? Why? What is the real agenda there? Now, if you're trying to answer that question and you're struggling because you want to hate Governor DeSantis and there isn't a legitimate, credible answer for this, then you have to accept what the alternative is. And the alternative is they're trying to groom children. And grooming isn't about they're all rapists and they want to rape your kids. That's not what it's about, okay? Grooming can mean all sorts of things. And when you are normalizing alternative lifestyles, here's the thing, you have any idea how few people are actually in the LGBTQ community? And I'm talking as a, as a percentage of the population, extraordinarily few people are actually in that group. What are the odds of one woman having two kids in that group? What are the odds? Almost zero. It's almost impossible. So she says she has a transgender child. She says she has a pansexual child. Pansexual child is just somebody who's attracted to anybody, regardless of their gender. Okay? Used to be known as bisexual. But that's, that's it. And as I, I highlighted yesterday, there's a large group of people who want to belong to LGBTQ as a social credit score. And they will say that they are the Q, okay, or the plus, and the plus basically includes Q and B and that sort of thing. A lot of the uh, acronym is redundant. And they will just say that, but they won't ever live their life that way. They won't live their life that way. They will have a preference. They will just be afraid to tell everybody they have that preference because they want to be included into the club. And we're seeing that a lot with millennials and younger people, which, of course, is the goal 
of getting in the classroom at a very young age and telling kids, oh, you can be all of these things. And it's totally normal. 99% of the population is going to be attracted to the opposite biological sex of which they were born. That is a reality, okay? Okay, between 95 and 99% ballpark. Okay, generally speaking, it's considered 2 to, two to 3% at the most that are in this, this LGBT group, okay? So they're going to say, well, that's changing now. Look at millennials and look at this teacher in the classroom yesterday. 30% of my kids are, they're not. They're just telling you they are, but they aren't. It's not how they live their life. It's just what they're outwardly projecting because they want to belong. They want to feel like they're a part of this minority group. So I will definitively prove to you why this is the right move following this commercial break. So don't go anywhere. I will prove why this was the right move, and I will let a teacher prove the case for me. And the teacher opposes me on this, but I will let them prove it for me without me having to say a word. More coming up, Newstalk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. All right, I'm going to let this teacher in Florida who teaches kindergarten just explain to you why Governor DeSantis was right in signing this legislation, which doesn't allow the discussion of sex and gender ideology for third through, uh, excuse me, kindergarten through third grade. Okay, so we're talking about, you know, four and five year olds to 10 year olds. That's what we're talking about here. So I'm just going to let him say it. I'm just going to play it for you, cue my audio, make sure it's all ready to go, and I'm just going to let, let his words speak for himself. Florida governor signing this um, into law. Yeah, it, you know, it, it's twofold. It really hits hard um, in my heart professionally and uh, personally both. Uh, professionally, it, it truly makes me feel like um, I am not trusted as a professional. Um, I know my kindergarten standards through and through, and um, nowhere in our curriculum does it have anything about um, teaching sexual orientation or sexual identity. Okay, so let me just pause it right there. Why the hell do you care then? What's the point? If you weren't going to do it anyway, and if the standards don't allow it to be done anyway, then why do you care that it's now codified that you're not going to be able to do it? Why would you care? Oh, they don't trust me. Well, I got news for you. TikTok is full of teachers who are grooming their children in their classroom. How many stories have we done about that, Josh? Lots, right? Lots, lots, lot all over the country. Anyway, it continues. Um, so for them to, to say that, that, that that's happening, um, it, you know, it's kind of crazy. Um, but uh, we should be able to have discussions, and, and that's what we're encouraged to do in kindergarten. And then personally, because... Um, you know, my, my kids do have questions. They want to know who the, uh, my partner is in pictures yeah. outside of my classroom, and I should be able to speak to that. So, so do you worry that you won't even be able to talk about your own personal home life? I mean, I, I have a child in kindergarten right now. I know exactly that my, my child has two teachers, one of which has a daughter at home um, and is single. The other is married and has four children. I, I know everything about their lives because my kid tells me. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Um, that's because teachers have decided to make the classroom about them. 
And that's because we have a culture now where it is built around, look at me, give me attention, heap praise on me for likes and clicks and views. I had no idea what the families of any of my teachers were like my entire time in school, with the exception of one teacher who had a problem with a student, lost her temper, and said, my husband can handle this for me if you really want to. Which, by the way, was the wrong thing to say. That's, okay. Sidebar, my psychology teacher was dating the, uh, the baseball coach and a, and a gym teacher at my high school. Okay, we all knew that. But that's because they were in the school together. Other than that, unless you saw a ring on their hand, you had no idea what their family life was like. If they had family photos, they were on their desk facing away from the class. Okay? This is a kindergarten teacher saying that, you know, it, it really hurts me because they don't trust me because we're not going to talk about any of that stuff. And then in the next breath, what does he say? We're supposed to have these discussions, and we should be able to have these discussions, and I want to talk about my gay partner with my kindergarten students. I'm sorry, didn't you just say in the previous sentence that it hurt your feelings? Because you're not supposed to talk about any of this in the classroom anyway? And that you should be trusted to not have these conversations in the classroom. And the very next sentence, he goes in to tell you that he has these conversations in the classroom and he should be able to. Why do you got a picture of your husband on the, on the outside of the wall? Put it on your desk where it belongs. Josh, when you go into somebody's office, I have to ask this question. Are the pictures facing you or are they facing the person who sits at that desk? Right. Facing the person that sits at the desk. The pictures aren't there for you. The pictures aren't there to show your lifestyle or your family off to anybody else. I got a newsflash for you, okay? And I know that this is going to hurt some of you older folks really hard. Probably going to hurt your breadbasket, okay? Nobody wants to see your damn family photos. Nobody wants to see them. Nobody. They're being polite. Nobody cares about your grandkids. Nobody cares about your children. Nobody wants to see them unless they were just born. And even then... Only for like 30 seconds. After that, eh, they're done. It's all being polite. Nobody actually cares. You're wasting their time. This guy, I should be trusted. We're not supposed to have these conversations, and I should be trusted as a professional and not have these conversations. The very next breath, I should be able to have this conversation with my students. They ask questions. I want to answer them. Turn your family photos around on your desk so it isn't an issue. And if it does come up, say, that's my family. Move on. That's all you got to do. It's not what this legislation is about at all. MNC News Time is 4.33. Speaking of family, make your family happy, your significant other happy. Go to Impress Jewelry Creations, ImpressJewelers.com. And good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. New peer-reviewed research. Hey, what do we know about peer-reviewed? I've done my best to teach you about peer-reviewed over the past, past couple of years. Uh, again, peer-reviewed is the second best option, but the first option that you should even consider looking at any research. Uh, if it doesn't have peer review on it, at a minimum, it is irrelevant and nonsense. It doesn't mean anything. Well, here we go. 
by a margin of 52% to 40%, voters believe that cheating affected the outcome of the 2020 U.S. presidential election. Now, just so you are familiar, because I realize we have some new math people out there. Uh, Maybe your kindergarten teacher was too busy teaching you about their same-sex sexual partners instead of math. 52% is 12% higher than 40%. Which means a majority of voters believe there was cheating that affected the outcome of the last presidential election. That is a Rasmussen Report survey from this month. This stands in stark contrast to the countless news stories editorializing about no evidence of voter fraud. Um, And if anybody says there's no evidence of voter fraud, uh, dismiss that individual as a liar right away because there is tons of evidence of voter fraud with people being arrested and convicted. Now, some of that voter fraud is not enough to sway the results of an election. But if they say there's no evidence of voter fraud, when in fact there are people being arrested and put on trial for voter fraud, even if it's only 10 votes, that person is a liar and they can't be trusted. It isn't just Republicans who believe this cheating occurred. Even 34% of Democrats believe it, as do 38% of those who somewhat support Joe Biden. A broad range of Americans think this, men, women, all age groups, whites, those who are either not white nor black, Republicans, those who are either Republican nor Democrat, neither Republican or Democrat, all job categories, all income groups, except those making over $200,000 per year. All educational groups, except those who attended graduate school. So the only people who don't think that there was voter fraud are rich people who went to graduate school. (laughs) Everybody else, eh, they know what's up. And let's be honest, those people in the elites probably supported the fraud anyway. With good reason, too. New research is forthcoming in the peer-reviewed economics journal, Public Choice, and it finds evidence of around 255,000 excess votes. We talked about this yesterday. Now, we know that there's about 255,000. That's the floor, okay? It's as high as 368,000 votes for Joe Biden in six swing states were actually fraudulent. Very interesting. Biden only carried these states, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, by a total of 313,253 votes. Excluding Michigan, the gap was 159,065 votes. In other words, a peer-reviewed study that we told you about yesterday, a peer-reviewed study, shows that it is very likely that Donald Trump won several of the states that were the key swing states at the end of that election okay and as i've told you before he only really needs two of them anyway but um i'm not sure that trump won nevada and i'm not sure that he won michigan there was no doubt massive fraud in michigan and it is certainly possible that trump won we all went to bed with trump winning michigan woke up suddenly he was losing michigan but i don't think that there is much of an argument that he won wisconsin and that he won pennsylvania And that would have put him over the top anyway. So even with the other ones being as as a toss-up, if you look at the court cases, because I'm not trying to go by partisan groups or even political audits, okay? I'm trying to go by the court rulings in those states, both prior to the election 
and after the election. The court rulings in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania say that Trump probably won the state based on the votes that were counted that should not have been counted because they were illegal votes. The point of this work isn't to contest the 2020 election, but to point out that we have a real problem that needs to be dealt with. Americans must have confidence in future elections. It's true. I've already proposed how I would fix it. Um, what, what state was it here recently? They they just found, was it, uh, was it North Carolina? It might have been North Carolina. They just found some state. It's just thousands of dead people and people who are not legally allowed to vote and people who don't live in the state anymore are still registered to vote in the state. It, at, at a bare minimum, we can't get to the point where every eight to 10 years we purge the voter rolls and make everybody start over. Now, why can't we get to that just basic minimum, the bare minimum of protecting the, the elections that we have in the future? The bare minimum. You get through two presidential elections, right? And you scrape the voter rolls. So anybody who's passed away, anybody who's moved, anybody who has been thrown in prison or anything like that, no longer is registered to vote. And then just have everybody reset. They re-register to vote. Okay? It really isn't that difficult. And the fact that there is a political party that finds tremendous fault with that should tell you something. That same party has been caught in multiple states and in multiple cities and in multiple municipalities using dead people to vote. That's why it's a joke. That is why it's a joke. I voted Republican my entire life until I died, and it was the first time I voted for Democrats, right? There's a reason for that. But this is a peer-reviewed study, and it shows between 255,000 to 368,000 votes for Joe Biden in six swing states would have actually been invalid, which would potentially have given Trump the win in many of those states. So I don't know what else to tell you, ladies and gentlemen. Like I said, uh, anybody who tells you that there's no voter fraud, first of all, they're a liar. Uh, there absolutely was fraud. Now they can say that there wasn't enough to overturn the election, and that's a perfectly tenable position for them to have. But that's why you have to know about these court cases and not just argue partisanship, uh, not just argue what we all saw with our own eyes in Wayne County, but to argue the legal cases because there's legal precedent and it is a part of the established legal record. And that's the way that you can win this argument and debate with somebody. So look at the legal cases in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Case closed. More coming up. Newstalk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. Good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. Don't forget, you can watch the live stream, rumble.com slash Casey the host, rumble.com slash Casey the host, and hit that subscribe button so you can get to all of my video content, including the early show. Okay, We'll send notifications out. You get the early show and all of that where we discuss various other issues. Southern Poverty Law Center. The Southern Poverty Law Center is a racist hate group. But even the employees say that now. Hmm, this is interesting. Employees at the Southern Poverty Law Center seemingly 
called their employer racist on Monday for allegedly requesting lower-paid employees to return to in-person work, according to the Washington Free Beacon. Oh, 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 oh. I'm sorry, but shouldn't the lower-paid employees be the ones that get to stay home with the price of gas? After all, they can't afford to go to work. How about this? Another leftist institution not paying people a livable wage. Why do we keep running into that? Why is it that all of these Democrat campaigns pay women less than men and they don't pay livable wages? Why is that? And yet they they constantly flap their gums like a bunch of fish in a pond about the situation. Uh, Southern Poverty Law Center union members protested outside the Montgomery, Alabama headquarters office, according to the Washington Free Beacon. The informational picket was in response to the uh, SPLC's requirement to return lower-level positions to the office, which the union claims disproportionately hurts black women. Hold on a second. Wait just a minute. What is the most educated demographic in the United States of America. Anyone? Black women. Why are black women at Southern Poverty Law Center the ultra-liberal group? Why are black women the lowest-paid group of employees at the Southern Poverty Law Center? Why is that? Hmm? Black women, many of whom, have been working at this organization for decades and positions with little or no opportunities for advancement are four times more likely to be denied telework and or remote work than white women and are seven times more likely to be denied telework options than white men at the center. Wow. So why does the Southern Poverty Law Center really hate black women? Why is that? Why do they hire black women and pay them lower wages than anybody else, in spite of black women being the most educated demographic in the country? And why do they offer them positions where there is no advancement after decades of working for the organization? Why is that? Hmm? You know the Southern Poverty Law Center's own definition of a hate group means that they are a hate group? You realize that, right? We've, we've done this story for years. Their own definition of what qualifies somebody to be called a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center means that they themselves, according to their own definition, are a hate group. That's why I say that they're a hate group. They are, according to their own definition. Their definition is ludicrous, and they falsely accuse tons of people of being a hate group, but that's their business. That's their whole business model. The Southern Poverty Law Center promised not to take more profits several years ago uh, when they got to a certain dollar amount. They got to that dollar amount. They started shipping their money offshores, and they adjusted that dollar amount upwards. They got to that dollar amount, shifted more money offshores, adjusted it upwards, and then finally they just said, yeah, we're, we're going to just continue to make money. Hmm. Lisa Wright, an SPLC union bargaining committee member, alleged that the organization's goal of, quote, forcing employees into the office was about policing and surveillance of Southern Poverty Law Center's lowest paid employees. Oh. Huh. Wow. But the SPLC says that law enforcement, pro-law enforcement groups are racist. So wouldn't policing minority employees be a racist policy by the Southern Poverty Law Center? Staff in more highly regarded job classifications and who are higher paid employees are, are being given the flexibility to work remotely while women 
black, brown, and lower-paid employees are forced back into the office regardless of our work, our needs, and our advocacy for more inclusive treatment. Forcing employees back into the office isn't about collaboration or cooperation. I tried telling you, one of the blessings of COVID is that it's going to bite a bunch of these left-wing nincompoops right in the keister. And it is starting to happen. So, I don't know why the Southern Poverty Law Center is a white supremacist organization that hates black women. But they do, according to their own employees. So, make sure you remind every oxygen thief, amoeba, moron, who quotes the Southern Poverty Law Center anywhere, remind them that they are supporting a white supremacist organization that oppresses minority women. Especially the news agencies that are constantly quoting their fake and fabricated and debunked statistics. More coming up, News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. Go to rumble.com slash Casey the host. Hit that subscribe button. Phrase of the day is God, we need you now. Good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I am your host, Casey Hendrickson. Do you want to thank R&B Car Company, locations in South Bend and Warsaw? R&B Car Company are your used car experts. You can find them online at rbcarcompany.com. You can watch the live stream at rumble.com slash Casey the host. Please hit that subscribe button. It doesn't cost you anything, and it really does help me. It's... The more people who, who subscribe to the channel or, or hit that you know like button and everything else, the more they allow my channel to get discovered by other people. So even if you never go back and watch it again, please hit the subscribe button. All right. Let's go over a couple of blurbs, shall we? A medical student tweeted out that a patient disrespected her pronouns, so she did the respectful thing and stuck him twice with a needle to draw blood. Hmm. <clears throat> That seems like a violation. I had a patient that I was going uh, doing a blood draw on, see my pronoun pin, and loudly laughed to the staff. She, her? Well, of course it is. What other pronouns even are there? It? I missed his vein, so he had to get stuck twice with a little laughy face emoji. Cool. You should lose your license. A not surprising Democrat donor, mega donor, in fact, Mega, mega, ultra donor, okay? His name is Elliot Cutler. Ever heard of Elliot Cutler, Josh? Nah, of course you didn't. Elliot Cutler is a lifelong Democrat mega donor and politician. He was arrested in Brooklyn, Maine on four charges of possessing child pornography involving kids under the age of 12. Judge Jackson would probably only give him two weeks behind bars. Democrat mega donor, pedophile. Another one. An Oregon fourth grade teacher who, for the record, was super proud about training kids in personal pronouns. Did we just talk about this earlier today, Josh? I feel like we did, right? Fourth grade teacher who was 
taking pride in teaching and training kids in using personal pronouns got escorted out of classroom by police after reportedly sending nude photos to uh, two students. What was it that that kindergarten teacher was saying? Why would they trust me to teach this stuff to kids? Yeah. This is why. That, this right here. That's why. This right here. Uh, he was from McMinnville Elementary School in the People's Republic of Oregon. He's been arrested and charged with two counts of attempted rape of a child in Redmond, Washington. His name is Andrew Burt Hammond. He's a 50-year-old supposed male, was arrested during an undercover operation. Hmm, how about that? Uh, bail was set as $100,000, by the way. So this guy can attempt to rape two children. He gets bail at hundred grand. Uh, but if you are only charged with trespassing on January 6th and no violent charges whatsoever, you get no bail. No bail for you. There is a gentleman by the name of Asa St. Clair. Asa St. Clair has been convicted of wire fraud. Now, this probably doesn't mean much to you. Many of you are probably like, I don't know who Asa is. Fair point. Why should you care that he's been convicted of wire fraud? Fair point. Now, what if I told you he was convicted of wire fraud because of a scam that he was running? See if this sounds familiar. Remember me telling you that a lot of prominent Democrats are running. I'm not playing audio, sorry. Um, that a lot of pro prominent Democrats are laundering money in the Ukraine. Remember that? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Asa St. Clair has been convicted of wire fraud for running a scam in Ukraine. Hmm. Anybody know who his partner was? Anybody? If you said... Paul Pelosi Jr., Nancy Pelosi's son, you would be right. So let's just pause for just a second. All right, shall we? Most of the people who are never Trumpers right now and are really going hard on Trump have kids or relatives who make a lot of money in Ukraine. And what was Trump trying to do in Ukraine? Stop corruption in Ukraine. Hmm. Mitt Romney's kid makes money in Ukraine, the Biden kid, the Pelosi kid. Now, what's interesting about two of those individuals, Hunter Biden's business partner has been convicted of, are you, are you ready? Fraud. We talked about that, what, two weeks ago? So Hunter Biden's business partner has been convicted of fraud. Nancy Pelosi's son's business partner has now been convicted of fraud, all of which tied to Ukraine. Hmm. How very strange. It's almost like there's something happening with these politicians and their relatives and making money in illegal ways in Ukraine. Kind of like what those Ukrainian members of parliament and their top law enforcement official have said for a couple of years now that the Biden family, many prominent members of the Democratic Party and others, have been stealing millions of dollars from the Ukrainian people through fraud. Hmm. Kind of weird. Do you think the news media, I just, you know, I don't know what the over-under is, okay? Uh, I haven't been on FanDuel today. Do you think the news media is going to cover that both Hunter Biden and... Paul Pelosi Jr.'s 
business partners in Ukrainian ventures have both been convicted of fraud. You know, usually if a business partner is convicted of fraud, the other business partners involved with that fraud. I wonder why Paul Pelosi Jr. isn't going down for this fraud, but his business partner is. find that to be very interesting. Research suggests that plastic bag bans may backfire. I've been talking about this for, God, 12 years, 13 years? Uh, for those of you who don't know, the old, the old research, many, many years ago, when the plastic bag bans were starting and they were trying to mandate paper bags, uh, paper bags are more harmful for the environment than plastic bags. The whole process of making and manufacturing and disposing of a paper bag is way worse environmentally than a plastic bag. And that has been the case, as far as I know, this entire time. Plastic bag bans are fairly irritating. They're paternalistic, preachy, and they deprive countless homes of the endless usefulness of the all-purpose plastic bag. You crazy cat people know what I'm talking about. But more than that, it appears that they might not actually work. Hmm. I'm shocked. I'm shocked by this. Uh, researchers at the University of Georgia suggest that banning the sale of plastic bags may come with a side dish of unintended consequences. A new analysis suggests that plastic bag ban policies, while well-intentioned, may end up having the opposite effect. The issue that comes up is that grocery bags are viewed as single-use items, but they often get a brief second lease on life as liners for small trash cans. Without the shopping bags available, people look for alternatives, which the researchers suggest means that they buy, are you ready for this? Small plastic garbage bags. Huh. Who knew? So you end up actually using more bags anyway. Well, there you go. Keeping in mind the second life that plastic grocery bags take on in many homes, the team measured plastic trash bag sales in counties with bans or fees in place and compared them to counties, <clears throat> excuse me, about to cough, counties without such policies. The study found that California communities with bag policies saw sales of four gallon trash bags increase by 55% to 75%, this, and sales of eight gallon trash bags increased 87 to 110%. Huh. Counterproductive. And, and paper bags are more damaging to the environment than plastic bags. Now, some of you are like, reusable bags, Casey. Okay, first of all, disgusting. And second of all, uh, people with reusable bags make more trips to the grocery store. True story. This has been researched as well. How do most people get to the grocery store? They drive. Hmm. Interesting. Hey, coming up next, we're going to talk about a new study that says preschool doesn't actually help your kids, and really, it might hurt your kids. We'll talk about that next. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. There are people who argue this. Are you serious? People think that Caldwell was a good coach in Detroit? In India as well. You're all wrong. He was a terrible coach. Why did they think he was a good coach? It was god-awful play calling in both places. This is before Casey walked away from football. So Casey knows about Jim Caldwell. Because some of you go, you don't watch football, Casey. And you have to understand something. I only walked away from football a few years ago, and it was it was like the year before Kaepernick took a knee because I was just swamped, and I wasn't allowed to watch football on Sundays because I had too much going on. 
Um, and that's the only reason that I haven't been watching football. But it's like I was just going over something because we're going to get into the NFL thing that happened a little bit later. And I was going over some stats with uh, with Josh, who's a sports guy. And he, he was telling me that people actually thought that Caldwell was a good coach. He was such a bad coach. I don't know that I would. Okay. I, 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 hold on. I was going to say, I don't know that I know I would trust him to run a high school offense. Okay. But there are some high schools where they have players that are like six inches taller than everybody else. He could run those, those schools. Okay. He couldn't run a school that had players that weren't the elite in the league around that area. It's like, like, wow. There are people who think he's a good coach. Oh boy. And I'm sure I, I know you've played enough Madden to know how to win a Super Bowl. I know it. All right, so there's a, a high-quality study that has found that preschool enrollment actually hurts kids. It doesn't help them. Now, typically, uh, what we have seen with preschool studies is that any benefits that kids get in preschool are gone by second grade, all right? So there were some research up until this one. There was some research that would show that there's benefits to enrolling your child in preschool. And, you know, however young that was, preschool is basically daycare. All right. And I've told you guys, both of my kids went to preschool because they demanded to go to preschool. It wasn't us forcing it on them. It wasn't us trying to push them out. They wanted to go. So we allowed them to go. Uh, we eased Harper into it. Bree was much more gung-ho. Uh, Bree had a, a full thrust into preschool. Uh, Harper was, again, eased kind of into it. But they both really wanted to go to preschool, so that's why we allowed it. Um, but if you're putting your kid in preschool for an educational benefit, there isn't an educational benefit. The best research in favor of preschool shows that any benefits that they get is gone by second grade. This study says it might actually be bad lifelong. We'll talk about it. Low-income children who attended Tennessee's highly praised preschool program performed significantly worse on every academic and social measurement by sixth grade. Wow. So, hmm. Um, you take preschool through sixth grade. Ten, now, Tennessee's preschool program, for those of you who don't know, is touted by teachers' unions as an example for the nation. Okay, They're constantly praising Tennessee's preschool program. Uh, it's been used as a national model by a lot of politicians. Okay, But this study which is getting the distinction of being a high-quality study because of the way that they did their, their data gathering and their statistical analysis. It's considered a really good study, okay? And by sixth grade, those who attended the preschool program performed not just worse, but significantly worse at every academic and social measurement, every single one. Huh. Now, these are low-income kids, okay? The children randomly assigned to attend pre-K had lower state achievement test scores in third through sixth grade than other controlled children, with the strongest negative effects in the sixth grade. Now, this is according to Vanderbilt University. Josh, Vanderbilt University is still considered a good school? It was considered a really elite school when I was going to college. So, okay. He says yes. A negative effect was also found for disciplinary infractions, attendance, and receipt of special education services. Enrollment in preschool programs has exploded in the United States since the 1980s, 
And the study, the study's authors note that from very few four-year-olds to approximately two-thirds today, but approximately half of four-year-olds who attend preschool to do do so part-time. Tennessee statewide voluntary preschool program, by contrast, was relatively time-intensive, requiring its low-income students to be in a classroom of up to 20 total children for at least five and a half hours a day. Now, the study suggests that family care is better for four-year-olds than, of course, the pre-K program. The only positive results for the pre-K program in Tennessee participants compared to non-participants occurred at the end of preschool. Uh, Then from third through sixth grade, only negative results were documented for the participants. So, here's the thing. There's a couple of things we have to factor in, okay? We have to factor in the undeniable 100% fact because it's been studied so much by so many different uh, organizations. The fact that preschool benefits are gone by second grade, okay? They're gone. Every study done on this that I have ever seen shows that any benefits you gain from preschool is gone by the end of the second, second grade year. So we already know that if you're going to get a benefit of going to pre-K, particularly if you're low income, which, by the way, low income students, pre-K have the biggest benefit of pre-K, but those benefits are gone second grade. The whole argument here is that, especially with low income, you need to get them in school earlier, start earlier, so they learn earlier, and then it mitigates the negative effects of whatever their home life might be. That is the argument for preschool. None of the research has ever shown that that is true beyond second grade. This study says, now when you get into third grade, because again, the benefit of preschool is gone by the end of second grade. But you get into third grade, all of a sudden, those same students who were doing better are now doing worse. So why are they doing worse? Is it the preschool's problem? Probably not. This is probably much more environmental than it is about the educational system. But what it does do is it highlights the push to preschool is purely about money. It is about getting parents out of the household, moms in particular, out of the household, back into the workforce, shaming stay-at-home moms, that sort of stuff. It is not about benefiting your kid in any way, shape, or form. Because there isn't any research that shows that preschool actually works and benefits the child beyond second grade. And this study seems to highlight with the national golden child of pre-K, it seems to highlight all of the same things that we have seen in all of the previous studies, but also went further up to sixth grade and found out that not only that, but the kids who are low income the low-income environment, oftentimes broken family, chaos at home, that sort of thing. While that stuff was mitigated for five and a half hours a day with pre-K, by the time they got into third grade, it wasn't enough to help them. And they still performed worse than their peers. The study suggests, again, family care is better for four-year-olds than the program. On the sixth-grade TN Ready Test controlled children, who mostly didn't attend preschool, continued to outperform the children in reading, math, and science with statistically significant differences larger than those observed in third grade. So the students in the same socioeconomic status who did not go to pre-K 
scored better in third grade through sixth grade than those who did go to pre-K. Now, even if you got similar socioeconomic status, there's a difference. More contact with the parents, more involvement with the parents and the child's education at home versus those who sent their kid to pre-K and basically outsourced their child's education and rearing. Um, Pretty powerful study. It's from Vanderbilt University, for crying out loud. I mean, when Vanderbilt publishes a study, you kind of pay attention to it, guys. All right. I'd talk a little bit about this, this new expansion of the Rooney Rule and why it's utterly stupid. Coming up on Newstalk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. MNC News Time is 5.32. Time to check out Impress Jewelry Creations, creating meaningful jewelry for the moments that will last a lifetime. Okay, got to talk about this little Rooney Rule thing here for a minute because the NFL continues to shoot themselves in the foot. Um, Rooney Rule was basically you're going to interview head coaches who are not white, okay, and uh, you have to do that in order to go ahead and, and uh, accurately get an assessment of the talent available for your, uh, for your coaching. Rather than just the teams knowing everybody in the league because it's a small league and they all know each other, and once somebody becomes available saying, hey, we want that guy, you know, you, you can't you can't really do that anymore. Uh, who's the guy from uh, the Dolphins, Josh, who is suing the league because he says it's, it's Flores. What did he call himself? The Rosa Parks of the NFL. That's what his what his his lawyer said that he's been referred to as the Rosa Parks of the NFL. Yeah, OK, cupcake. So but he's upset. He's suing the NFL because he was a Rooney Rule interview. And he didn't get the job. But they were forced to interview him. <laughs> but he's like, I didn't get the job, though. They didn't want you. He's like, well, they just wasted my time. Exactly. That's what we've been saying for all of these years, right? So here's, here's the thing, okay? The NFL is now expanding the Rooney Rule, okay, to include women who totally know a lot about playing and coaching football. And I'm not saying that there aren't Women out there who know their stuff, there are, but it's a little different when you've got people who've grown up playing the game at all levels and somebody who grew up not playing the game but watched the game. And I I apply this same standard to many of the men out there who think that they can win a Super Bowl and they know what a real quarterback looks like. Just because you play Madden doesn't mean you know what you're talking about, okay? You're not going to be able to run the same vanilla West Coast offense Every single day game and win a game. You're not going to be able to do it. Okay. Um, but this is an interesting one because this kind of expands that. And I decided I would just kind of take a look at, at the, uh, the Rooney rule success, shall we? So since the Rooney rule was put in, there have been 17 black or other minority coaches who have been hired. Okay. 17. Of the 17, and Josh and I were having this conversation, what would you consider a successful tenure as a head coach? And we figured about five years, okay? Forget about the win-loss record because that gets caught up in too much minutia and everything else. But if you're there three years, you didn't do anything. If you're there under three years, you were awful, okay? But if you're there over, you know, like five years, five years or more, you probably had some success and it fell off and then you got, you got canned. 
So I'm willing to count a five-year tenure as a head coach in the NFL as a somewhat successful um, tenure as a head coach. Of the 17 head coaches who were hired under the Rooney rule, okay, four have been successful. Four. That's not helping anybody. Marvin Lewis with the Bengals, and you can argue that Marvin Lewis was there a good 10 years after he should have been, okay? <laughs> but he was, right? So Marvin Lewis, Lovey Smith with the Bears, not with the Bucks, but with the Bears. Uh, you had Tomlin, who's still coaching the Steelers. And for the record, there's a lot of people who didn't think that Tomlin was going to last. They thought that that was, was uh, Bill Cowher's team, and he wasn't going to be able to do it. Tomlin's turned out to be a great coach. Uh, then you have... You guys, you get, um, we got Caldwell with two three-year stints. So I'm going to call that two failures. He's a double failure. And for those of you who think that Caldwell is a good coach, stop it. He was not. He was a terrible coach. Um, there's a bunch of like two and three-year guys. And then who's the other one here? Hold on a second. Where? Wait, that was no, that was it. That was all four. I gave you all four already. So the rest of them are two and three years or less, okay? Or less. And, uh, oh, Ron Rivera is the other guy. Sorry. Ron Rivera with the Panthers. He was there for eight years, and then now he's the uh, the coach of the uh, Redskins slash Commanders, whatever you want to say. So there you go. Um, that's it. So out of 17 Rooney Rule hires, only four of them have been successful. Now you have to ask, were the candidates that were hired, were they the best candidate? Now some of these are new new guys who are just taking over teams, okay? But were they the best available coaches, or were they diversity hires because they, they felt – that they needed to do that because of the league and how much money was wasted and how much damage was caused by hiring somebody who may not have been a good coach. I'm not saying that that happened. I'm just saying that this now leads to the question. It's kind of like when you go out there and you say, I am going to appoint a black woman to be my Supreme Court nominee. Okay. Judge Jackson isn't the best available candidate. She's the best available black woman. That's not the best available candidate. She will always have that asterisk. And that's not fair to her. And a lot of these coaches, one of them is now suing. He's suing two teams, right? One is now suing because of this because he feels like he wasn't put in a position of success because of the Rooney Rule. So expanding this out, don't think it's going to make anything any better. But uh, as more of the uh, retired players, and of course there's more minority players in the NFL than, than, than uh, whites, but as more of them are retiring, and going the other route, I think you'll probably start to see just a natural progression of more of them going into coaching. But, uh, wow. This is not going to be a good good time for the NFL at all. Got more coming up. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's News Channel. Good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. News Talk 95.3, Michiana's news channel. I am your host, Casey Andrews. A couple of people were, were mentioning Tony Dungy. Tony Dungy was not a Rooney hire. That's the only reason I didn't include him. Tony Dungy, very successful black coach, uh, but he was not a Rooney hire. So it was purely about the Rooney hire situation. 
Um, and the NFL thought that the Rooney rule was going to make uh, this wave of successful black coaches. It just, it didn't. It's a very tough job and there's no patience amongst the fan base or the ownership now with quarterbacks, with uh, owners or, or uh, head coaches and that sort of thing. So it's, um, it, you know, like I said, it's not going to do any good for the NFL, but a lot of you aren't watching the NFL anymore anyway. So there's that. Go college ball. All right. Go to rumble.com slash Casey, the host. Please hit that subscribe button. The sentence of the day is God, we need you now. Put that in the comments to hack the algorithm. I appreciate that. You can get the Daily Show prep, podcasts, and more over at theburningtruth.us. Also, in the past month, Spotify has become the number one source for people to listen to my podcast. So thank you for that growth. I really do appreciate it. Here's Bill O'Reilly. We'll see you tomorrow.